Uh, this morning's reading comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. It's on page 820 of the church Bible, but just to warn you that my Bible is slightly different, so some of the words will differ. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, how good is this rain? We prayed a few weeks ago for rain, and the rain came. So if you have a problem with the outdoor area, they're struggling to do some work because we prayed for rain. So if you can pray that the rain would stop, that'd be good. Hey, we're going to, uh, on the next nine weeks, go through this series in Mark. Uh, we're excited to look from ver chapter 9, verse 2, through to the end of the book. But let's pray now, and then we'll get into this passage. Um, God, we thank you so much for your grace uh, and your mercy to us. God, as we have already celebrated this morning, we thank you that as we gather together this morning, we know that we have a King and a Savior who has died and been raised from the dead. God, we ask that this morning, wherever we are at, whatever kind of weeks we have had, we pray that you would clear our minds and our hearts, and we pray that you would speak to us and challenge us and change us, and we pray that we would walk out today different people than the ones who walked in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where do you find freedom? 
Where do you find freedom? If you type that question into Google, they will send you to a page called WikiHow. And if you've ever been to WikiHow, you'll know that it's kind of hit and miss. Some of them are pretty terrible. And the one on how do I find freedom is pretty terrible. So for our joy this morning, I thought I would give you the three highlights from their nine steps to find freedom. Coming in at number one was attached to this picture. I don't know what your thoughts you have when you see this picture, but step number four in the steps to find freedom was say please and thank you. Right? Say please and thank you. If you have good manners, you'll find freedom. So maybe this morning you are trapped, you feel enslaved, and it's probably because your manners are terrible. Step number five was this one. Uh, the second one I want to highlight, uh, this guy, and the uh, one was uh, find something you like doing. So obviously, the guy here loves playing the guitar. He's loving it, and he's got freedom there. There was also the other suggestions of, uh, if you like animals, buy an animal. Um, you know, if you like music, play music, whatever else. Then there's uh, finally step number six. It was attached to this photo. Now, again, what thoughts run through your head, I'm not sure, but this one, step number six, was find a hobby. Now, there's a few things wrong with this. Number one is hula hooping is not a hobby. Right? Like, if you're into that, it's fun, maybe, but not a hobby. But it gets worse. Okay, this is literally what they say, if we can go to that next slide. Uh, start hula hooping, or, if you don't like hula hooping, recycling things to find at a garage sale, or keep a journal to write, uh, that you write one sentence in every hour, on the hour, first thing that pops into your head. Who knew freedom was that close? Right, now, I'm pretty confident, not 100% sure, but pretty confident if we came back next week and all of us had written in a journal every hour on the hour, 12 o'clock Sunday, ate lunch. None of us right, feel like that's freedom. Right? In fact, I feel like that would be the worst thing we could possibly do, a crippling experience for all of us. Now, as you get to the end of it, they're all pretty much the same. We can move on from the hula hooper. Uh, they're all pretty much the same. And ultimately, you get to the end of the nine steps on how to find freedom, not really sure how any of those steps actually help you find freedom. But it's interesting because not only on WikiHow, but in self-help books and podcasts and other things in that kind of space, what's interesting is that as a culture, we know we want freedom, right? Like, we, we know we want freedom. In fact, some people will even say we need freedom. We get fired up when freedom gets taken away. But when it comes to what exactly that means or looks like, what exactly freedom really is, culturally, I mean, we're just not sure, right? Like, what, what freedom does hula hooping give you? Right? None. What does journaling give you? I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe they're good things to do. But in terms of freedom, what do those things actually bring? What do they actually free us from? And so, what we want to do then in the next nine weeks, right? Recognizing that WikiHow is not going to help us. Uh, in the next nine weeks, what we want to do is we want to actually come to God's Word and see some clarity on freedom. Right? Not only the question of what are we free from, but what is a lasting freedom—a freedom that's going to last longer than 
hula hooping or writing in a journal, a freedom that's true and real and good? What is the freedom that Jesus has to offer? The the hope is that in the next nine weeks, we get some clarity on what freedom actually is because WikiHow's not going to help us. So we're going to pick this journey up at the beginning of chapter nine. So not where our Bible reading was, but in verse number two. And the aim is next nine weeks, let's find some freedom. So verse two, we pick the story up. This is how Mark continues. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Moses, uh, with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put three shelters, or your Bible might say tents, or literally it's tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Okay, so we want clarity on freedom. And here, what we see on top of this mountain is what's, what's clear, the big take-home thing from what happens on this mountain is that here is the new leader. Here is the new king, the king the Old Testament spoke about. Here he is, and he has come to bring freedom. In fact, he's come to bring a new era for God's people, an era marked by freedom. Okay, that's what's clear that's happening on top of this mountain. Okay, I know there's lots of questions, lots of detail, but this is clear, and it's clear from the people that show up. Okay, so the picture is James, John, Peter go up to a mountain with Jesus. He's up there. He transfigures, changes, bright white, and then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appear. Okay, now, this is significant. Moses is a guy we've met before in the Bible. Um, he is the leader of God's people in the Old Testament, or one of the leaders. And his job was to bring God's people, to lead them out of slavery under Egypt into the promised land. Okay, now Moses is here on this mountain to point to the fact that Jesus is this new leader. Okay, he's the new king. He's the new one that's going to bring freedom, that's going to lead God's people. Then we get Elijah. Okay, so we've got Moses pointing out, new leader. Then Elijah rocks up and his significance, not just in what he did in the Old Testament, but in the book of Malachi, at the end of the book of Malachi. So uh, in our Bibles, it goes Malachi and then the next book is the New Testament. Okay, and in that gap, there's about a 400-year break. And at the end of Malachi, there's this promise that this leader is going to come. Okay, this leader who's going to come and bring freedom. But in the last verses of Malachi, it says, for this leader to come, Elijah must come first. Okay, so if you're a Jew waiting for this leader, you weren't just waiting for the leader, you're waiting for Elijah. Okay, because if Elijah came, the leader would be there right shortly after. Okay, so Moses is there going, new leader. Elijah's there going, okay, I'm here, new leader. And then God rocks up in a cloud and says, here's the leader. Right? This is my son, listen to him. Okay, now that is the big picture of what's going on in this mountain. Right? That's the take-home message. Here is the new king, the king the Old Testament spoke about, who's coming to bring freedom. Now, I know that on top of this mountain, there's lots of questions that we want to ask. Right? Like there's... There's some curiosity that comes in about the detail on this mountain, right? Like, what was it like for Jesus to ch- change like that, right? Like, what did, what did that look like? And, and how did he get his clothes so bright, 
right? Like if it was whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, is there a chance that we can get our hands on that bleach, right? Like what did that look like? And then how did we know Elijah was there? I mean, what, what was that like where he just appeared? How did they know it was Elijah? And then Moses, right? Was he holding a staff? Because I wouldn't have known it's Moses unless he holds a staff because that's what all the cartoons tell us. And so there's all of these kind of questions about the detail. Like, what was it like hearing God's voice out of a cloud? Uh, that would have been a pretty amazing experience. But we've got to be careful because we can't get lost in the detail. The big picture here is clear. And what everyone on that mountain would have walked away from is clear. Okay, Jesus is a big deal. Right? He is clearly a big deal. Here is the king the Old Testament spoke about. Here is this new leader. This leader is going to bring an era of freedom. Here he is. Right? That's the big take-home thing. Now, the question for us then is, okay, if we want clarity on freedom, what does this freedom look like? If he's going to set the captives free, what does that freedom look like? And not just what does the freedom look like, what does he free us from, and how do we get this freedom? Uh, this is a good question for us, but it's also a good question for a few other people, right? I don't know if you noticed it, but Peter doesn't really know what's going on in this story, right? I mean, he's, he sees what's happening, and Mark even tells us, right, he, he was kind of clueless. He was frightened. He didn't know what was going on in verse 5 and 6. And so Peter says, let me build you some tents. Now, it's not as silly as saying to these three people on the mountain, let me make you some swags, right? Let me set you up a swag for the night and, you know, you can stay over and stuff like that. Not that dumb, what Peter's saying, but he doesn't know what's going on, okay? And we see this because he says, let me build you some tabernacles, right? Now, tabernacle in the Old Testament, again, significant because God would meet with God's people at the tabernacle. Right, So this is what Peter's doing by saying, let me, let me set up three tabernacles for you. In Peter's mind, he's marking this hill. Okay, Because he can see that this new leader's here. I mean, God, God says it. Elijah's there. Moses is here. He, he, I think he gets that Jesus is this new leader. But what Peter's doing is marking this hill. Saying this hill is going to be significant because from here on out in this era of freedom, we'll meet with God on top of this hill. So, so the question then that we're asking, right, what does this freedom look like and how do we get it, is a question Peter should kind of know as well. But it's also appropriate too for the original readers to ask this question. Okay, and we kind of need to feel the weight of this as well. Right, so Mark was writing to the people in Rome. Okay, and the people in Rome in about like 40 to 60 AD, if you were a Christian, you would have suffered for your faith. Guaranteed. Right, uh, you'd be beaten for your faith whipped for your faith, and the likelihood of death was a genuine possibility. Okay, now, we need to feel this for a second, right? The weightiness for these people in Rome. They lived where Nero killed Christians for entertainment, right? He had parties where he burnt Christians. So, so you wake up each day wondering if your friends and your family are safe. You know, you wake up each day hoping that we haven't got the message that our church has been killed for their faith. And so for these Christians in Rome to hear that this new leader is here who's going to set the captives free, this is good news, right? This is beautiful news. It's freeing news because you're hoping, okay, this means like, like Moses did from Egypt, that now this new leader will set us free from Rome. And so the question is, right, how does he bring freedom? 
What does this freedom look like? What does he set us free from? And this is exactly where Jesus goes. This is what he tells us. And we see this from verse 9. What does this freedom look like? Well, they start coming down the mountain. And Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. What is the freedom that we're going to see in this new era of freedom? How is this king going to set the captives free? Well, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't give the battle plan of how Rome's going down. He doesn't say Rome is going to suffer and die. Instead, he points to his own suffering and death and resurrection. And in this moment, what Jesus is pointing to is the type of freedom that's available in this new era, this era of freedom. Now, again, there's some confusing stuff about Elijah going on here, right? But, but if we remember, they're looking for Elijah, they're waiting for Elijah, and Jesus basically says to them, Elijah's already come, right? Not literally the literal Elijah, but the type of Elijah in John the Baptist, and they killed him. Which means then this leader's here who's going to bring this era of freedom. And he's not going to bring this era of freedom by killing Rome. He's not going to bring in this freedom from this hill, the hill of transfiguration, and go and fight and kill Rome. Instead, he will bring in a different type of freedom. A freedom grounded in his suffering and death. A freedom given from him rising from the dead. The freedom that this era will bring is the freedom from sin and death. So, so Jesus isn't going to give the freedom from the physical suffering that they face. He's not going to give them freedom from Nero. Instead, he's going to give them an, an eternal freedom, a freedom that says there is death is not your end. And he will secure this freedom, not on the hill of transfiguration, but on a different hill. When Peter marked this hill, he was marking the wrong hill. He got the wrong hill. That's not the hill we celebrate we don't celebrate the hill of transfiguration. We celebrate the different hill. We celebrate the hill of Calvary, where Jesus was hanging on the cross, not with Moses and Elijah, but with criminals. We celebrate the hill of Calvary, where God's glory wasn't in the cloud, but the clouds covered the earth as a sign of God's judgment and abandonment. We celebrate the hill of Calvary, where God wasn't saying, this is my son, listen to him. But instead, Jesus was dying for his claims to be God's son, to be the king. We celebrate that hill because at that hill, right, that's where the innocent was judged guilty. That's where Jesus died to set the captives free so that the guilty could have liberty. That's where freedom was secured. It was secured not on the hill of transfiguration, but on a different hill. And so what we see then is the type of freedom this era is going to bring. It's a freedom not from the temporary suffering, but the eternal one. And Jesus has secured this. It's a freedom where we know that our security and our hope is not in our ability, not in our works, not in our efforts, not in our past, but because of what Jesus has done at the cross. This is the freedom that Jesus is going to bring. Right? This is what this era will be marked by, a mark by freedom, freedom from sin and death. But as we go on, that's not the only type of freedom Jesus is going to bring. 
And we see this in the next passage, the one we had read out there. The next freedom that Jesus is going to bring is the freedom from the demonic. Now, it's interesting, a couple of weeks ago, we took our youth to Fun and Adventure, uh, a camp where teenagers go. There was about 144 of us. Uh, it was awesome. And we had five talks in Revelation. Now, in the book of Revelation, uh, it was talk three, I think, where we talked about how Jesus defeats Satan. Okay, now, uh, what we do is we have the talks and then we break into small groups. And I had four year nine boys in my small group. Now, the difficulty with year nine boys is you need to explain the truths in a way that they understand. So as we were talking about Jesus' victory over Satan, um, I wanted to go to a Martin Luther quote where he kind of puts it in language that year nine boys can understand. So he talks about resisting the devil. And the quote is literally, I resist the devil even when I break wind, I chase him away. Okay, so, um, you know, whatever you call it in your house, we'll just call it that here. Um, but that's what it said. So I'm like, okay, year nine boys are going to love this, right? We talk about the, you know, the victory that we have over the demonic, how it's not about rituals or whatever else, but in Jesus we have confidence in this. So I say the quote. Great, kids, you know, they get it. What I wasn't prepared for was the one year nine boy who, like he was made for this moment, prepped for it by someone else, as I said this quote, instantly said, in the name of Jesus, and lifted a leg up and broke wind. Now, good news, by the end of the week, he committed his life to Jesus. Bad news, small room, no windows, and I'll never do that again. But the point was clear, I hope. Now, it was a little bit difficult to bring the boys back, but we got there in the end. Now, the, the thing is in this moment, though, and, and the reason I still love the quote is because it does show the confidence that we have over the demonic, right? Like that in Jesus, it's not really a battle. It's not this kind of, you know, tension, arm wrestle, where you don't know where it's going to go. But actually in Jesus, we know we have victory over the demonic. Now, this is exactly what we see in this next passage. Jesus shows that he brings freedom. This era of freedom is not just marked by the freedom from sin and death, but the freedom over the demonic. And we pick the story up from verse 14. See, they come down the mountain and there's an argument going on. Jesus asks in verse 16, what are you arguing about? And then we meet the dad in the story. Verse 17, he says, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Okay, so we got the picture. Crowds gathered around. There's an argument happening. Jesus says, what are you arguing about? And then the dad comes along and says, my son is suffering. My son is suffering. He has seizures. He can't speak. My son foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and it becomes rigid. Now, even if you don't have kids, we can feel the pain that this dad is going through. When you see someone you love and you are helpless to fix their problems, where parents would want to take the place of their children in this moment, where the pain is so bad and yet you're watching it but you can't do anything about it. That's what this dad's going through. 
Now, now what we can't do is say that any sickness like this or any uh, crippling thing like this is demonic. But here in this passage, it's clear to them that there was a demon causing this stuff. Now, the dad says, I tried to ask your disciples, or I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, that's kind of weird because two chapters earlier in chapter 6, they could. They cast demons out. So what's going on? What's the difference here? Well, Jesus says in verse 19, it's unbelief. Right? He calls his disciples, you unbelieving generation, how long am I going to be here with you? Right? The point is, something's changed, and in this moment, there's this recognition that these disciples had a lack of trust in Jesus. Right? There was a problem with their belief. might even be that in this moment, they thought in and of their own strength, they could cast this demon out. And so Jesus says, you unbelieving generation. And then he asks you know, the, the, this dad to bring the boy to him. When they brought the boy in, again, the spirit seized him. There was a seizure again, convulsions. He started foaming at the mouth. Verse 21, Jesus says to the father, how long has this been happening? And the dad replies in verse 21, from childhood. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. So again, you feel what this dad's going through. Not only is it a helpless situation, but week in, week out, you watch this demon try and kill this boy. So burns on top of seizures, tries to drown him, and this has been happening from childhood. Year after year, this dad has been going through pain and, and over and over again has yet to find a solution to what's happening. And so he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us, and help us. If you can, if you can, says Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, the temptation is, as a reader, I mean, we've just seen what Jesus can do, right? We've seen the big deal of who Jesus is. As a reader, the temptation is to think that if this dad had even heard about some of the stuff that Jesus did, then, then maybe he should kind of be a little bit more confident in his request of Jesus. That's the temptation. But the reality, if we've experienced any pain like this, we know is different, right? Because pain, when it's year after year, when we don't find solutions to the pain, often diminishes our optimism, right? Where we have prayed and got no answer. We have sought medical advice and found nothing. We have been strategic, haven't found solutions. And so the reality of what this dad is saying is exactly what we would say. If you can do anything, take pity on us. And Jesus says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying everything's possible for the one who's good. He doesn't say everything's possible for the one who does the right thing for the one with no past, for the one of a certain skin color, for the one of, you know, everything's possible, for the one, for the religious, for the pastors, for the priests, for the privileged. He doesn't say that. He says everything is possible for the one who believes. And the dad cries out, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You see what the dad's saying here in this moment? I surrender. It's the cry of desperation, the cry of surrender. I've got nothing. And he throws himself at the mercy of Jesus. 
He lets go of everything. He even lets go of his ability, his strength. He even lets go of his ability to fight his doubts. Let's go of his ability, of his belief. He lets go of everything. He surrenders at the foot of Jesus and says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus reacts, casts the demon out, frees the boy, gives the boy freedom. He's maybe never experienced that before. Casts the demon out, provides freedom, and shows not just the dad, what type of leader that Jesus is, the son, what type of leader Jesus is, but us, what type of leader Jesus is, and the freedom Jesus gives. It's not just a freedom over sin and death. It's a freedom over the demonic. It's a freedom over the demonic, the the demons that want to destroy us and kill us and will put us through pain and hurt and will go to endless actions to try and destroy us, but we have freedom over it, right? That's what Jesus provides. So we get this new leader who brings in this era of freedom, who heals the sick and makes the blind see, who set the captives free. We get this new leader who brings in this era of freedom, a freedom from sin and death and a freedom from the demonic. Now, at the start, we ask this question, right? Where's the clarity on freedom? And so the question then is for us, how do we get this freedom? Right? Because we all know hula hooping's not going to do the job. Right? The journal's not going to do the job. So how do we get the freedom that Jesus offers? The freedom that's true and lasting, the freedom that goes eternally? Well, we see it from the characters in this story. And it's really simple, But at the same time, the practice of it is really complex. How do we get this freedom? Well, quite simply, it's we trust in Jesus. Okay, that's the simple. On the surface, it's really simple. We actually just trust in Jesus. We know that he is the king the Old Testament spoke about, the one who brings freedom, the one who died and rose again, and we trust him. But the reality is of what trust actually means when we start to dig is much more complex Because trusting Jesus isn't simply the intellectual exercise of knowing that Jesus is who he says he is. Trusting Jesus is more than that. Trusting Jesus is surrender. That's what trusting Jesus is. It's not just this intellectual exercise. It's letting go of everything. And we see that in this story from the disciples and from the dad. right? So the disciples didn't surrender everything. There's this level here where they were holding on to their ability and their strength. And at the end of the passage, they say, why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Right? The point is that he's saying to the disciples in this moment, right, you didn't surrender everything. You didn't let go of your ability. You didn't let go of all that you had. But what we didn't see in the disciples, we do see in the dad who surrendered it all. His ability, his skills, his belief. He laid everything that he had and everything that he was at the foot of Jesus. He threw all that he was at the mercy of Jesus. He surrendered everything. And so, right, trust then is not just this intellectual exercise. It's actually surrendering to Christ. Surrendering all that we have to Jesus. Which means it's not only more complex than just intellectual, but it's harder to do. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I read this and I see the freedom of this new era, of this new king, I love the freedom over sin and death. 
Love that we have freedom over the demonic. Love that we have a king who is powerful and God with us. And I love that stuff. You know what I find hard? Surrender. That's hard. Because for me, I don't want to let go of me. And it's not just because I'm selfish, although I am. It's because the culture we live in now, we have more control than we've ever had before. Right? Like we can work wherever we want to work. We can study wherever we want to study. And if we don't like our work or our study, we do something else. We can live wherever we want to live. We can drive wherever we want to drive. If we want to live here, we live here. If we want to go somewhere else, we live overseas. We can do whatever we want. We're in control. If we don't like our kids, the school that our kids go to, we just send them to another school. We're in control of that. We're even in control on a smaller level of our entertainment. right? So if we don't like what we're watching, we just press pause and we watch something else. If we don't like the app that we're on, we just close the app. If we don't like our phone, we get a new phone. Right, we are in control culturally more than ever before. And so what happens is, on top of our selfish hearts, we get control and we like control. And so the concept of surrendering means I have to let go of my control, and that's something I don't like. Right? I don't want to let go of my time or my money. I don't want to let go of my abilities. I don't want to let go of me. right? I want to hold on to me because I feel good about me. But what Jesus is calling us to, what he's saying here, what trust is, is surrender. It means we don't hold on to me. It means we let go of me. And we come to the foot of the cross like the dad in this story and we surrender everything. It means we gather up all that I am and all that I have and we lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, I got nothing. That's what surrender is. And that's what trust is. Trust is not just this intellectual, yes, Jesus died to set me free. He did that. But trust is more than that. It's surrendering. It's letting go of all that I am and all that I have and holding on to the foot of the cross. That's what surrender looks like. And so for some of us today, what this means is, as we come, as we trust in Jesus, or as we want this freedom that he offers, what this means for some of us this morning is that we actually have to surrender. Do we have to let go of some stuff? It might be this morning that the things that you're holding on to, you know, I I feel like we all know what we're holding on to. For for some of us, there's sin. that We're not willing to surrender to Jesus. There's bits of our lives that we're okay with. We're not okay to surrender that. For some of us, it's our time. where We don't want to surrender our time. We don't want to surrender ourselves. We like that time. For some of us, it's our abilities. We like feeling good about what I'm able to do. And we don't want to surrender that to Jesus. For some of us, it's our money. We don't want to give Jesus everything. We're okay to take what the freedom he gives us, but we don't want to surrender our whole lives. It might be time, it might be our abilities, it might be something else for you. But what trust means is surrender. Trust means letting go. For some of us, it might be control, where we like being in control. We don't like the idea that I'm not in control. But what trust is, is surrender. And in surrendering to Jesus, it's there that we find freedom. It's there where we recognize that our security in heaven, that our freedom from sin and death and the demonic is not based on me. 
And so we can come to Jesus, we can surrender everything, and in that moment of surrender, it's there that we find freedom. That's where we find true, lasting freedom. Freedom that goes beyond Sunday. Freedom that goes beyond our lives. A freedom where we can celebrate the King who set us free forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this revelation of Jesus. We thank you that he is the king who brings freedom. We thank you for the freedom over sin and death. And we thank you for the freedom over the demonic. And God, as we come before you this morning and we put our trust in you, we pray that you would help us to see what this trust looks like. That this trust means letting go. That this trust means surrendering all that we have and all that we are. Lord, this is hard. It's difficult for us. We like having control. We like having the freedom to do whatever we want to do. We like having the freedom where we feel good about what we do. But God, like the dad in this story, we pray that we would come before you helpless, laying everything down at the foot of Jesus, saying, I surrender everything. Help us to do that. And we pray for some of us today who are, who are kind of wrestling with maybe moments and parts of our lives that we, we've been struggling through and we don't want to surrender. God, we pray that you would help us to surrender everything. We pray that this challenge would not just be here this morning, but that it would stretch into our weeks and into our lives. And we pray that we would be a people of surrender. And as we surrender, that we would be a people who find freedom, freedom in Jesus. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.